shipwrecked on an island. They both on the same boat, and they, they both survived, and they landed on the same island. And one man was just a bundle of nerves. He paced back and forth and back and forth, and he was worried and scared about, while the other man sat back and was kind of getting a tan. <laughs> the first man said to the second man, aren't you afraid we're going to die here on this island? And the second man said, no. I make a thousand bucks a week. I'm, I'm sorry. I make a hundred thousand bucks a week, and I tithe faithfully to, to my church every week. My pastor will find me. <laughs> you know, I, it's just kind of true. And it, I, I read a story this week about um, John D. Rockefeller and about how uh, his life was radically changed, kind of a, uh, in, in midlife. It's interesting, he, he determined early in his life that his goal was to make a million dollars. And when he got, made a million dollars, he made a determination that I will, be, uh, I will make a billion dollars. And um, if I understand it, he was doggedly determined with this billion dollar goal and might have been in America the first ever person that we knew in, in American history to have been a billionaire because he just was determined determined. His whole goal in life, everything he did was aimed toward making this billion dollars. The story goes that about, about age 53, he was miserable and sick and feeling terrible. And he went to his doctors and they talked about all the myriad of things that were wrong with him. And he probably wasn't going to live out the year. And he decided at age 53 that he'd start becoming philanthropic. You know how old John D. Rockefeller was when he died? 98. Isn't that interesting? Is that a quid pro quo? Is that a, a cause and effect? I don't know, but it sure kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? That, um, that generosity gives back. Well, we kind of know that, don't we? Well, we're going to read about a couple in the Bible today. If you'll turn with me to Acts 4, uh, we'll be at Acts 4 today and again next week. Um, so if you'll go with me to Acts 4 and 5, we're kind of going to be in 4 and 5 the next couple of weeks, but especially Acts 4, we're going to read about a couple who um, kind of feigned generosity, okay? It's going to be interesting to kind of discover what was going on. Now, if you remember last week the, uh, when we talked, the number of disciples had been steadily growing since the birth of the church on um, the day of Pentecost back in Acts 2. Uh, then we started dealing with the threats from outside, from Jewish authorities and, and the Romans that were backing them. Uh, um, they kind of threatened them. But those threats didn't deter the preaching of the gospel. The apostles knew they had a higher calling and they continued in it. So, as a result of their faithful witness, God blessed the Jerusalem church with unity. They just kind of lived together and uh, loved on each other and took care of each other. And they took care of the community, even outside of the family of faith. And it was just this wonderful time that we read about at the end of Acts 2 and again toward the end of Acts 4. Well, uh, since Satan, since the devil had been kind of unsuccessful in using outside opposition to stop the spread of the gospel, he starts attempting to use something inside the church. And I think it's interesting that he takes something really, really positive and makes it 
um, kind of caustic. He makes it, you know, anything that, that is good, the devil can twist and make not good. I mean, if, if we took the time this morning to talk about those things that de- the devil takes that are good and makes them into something vitriolic, we'd spend all morning just kind of coming up with examples of that, wouldn't we? So, we find ourselves in chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 34 in just a minute, but we find ourselves with this issue that it, 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 it heavily threatens the influence of the church. Now, I'm going to come back to this thought a couple of times, but I want you to think about when, um, when, when I kind of cue you, you'll know what we're talking about. What I want you to know is the church is a baby right here. It's months old. Okay? And what I'm going to tell you is the things that happen in this chapter are all about protecting the baby. Okay? We'll deal with that in just a minute. Mr. Bob, would you read for us this morning? Go to 4, and I want you to start at verse 34 and read down through 37. I'm sorry? Okay. Okay, now, we're going to meet a guy named Joseph here in chapter 4, and then we're going to go on to chapter 5, and we'll continue in chapter 5 next week. Um, um, now, uh, this is kind of interesting. There were no, it says here there are no needy persons among them. There's kind of this, despite all these threats, that believers continue this practice of generosity person to person to person. And what, you've got to under, what we've got to understand here is that this practice was just prevalent. It was, it was just kind of the way it happened. It was wonderfully organic, if you know what I mean by that term. Uh, somebody go, if you would, just flip back a page and read verse 44 and 45 from chapter 2. Can we read that? that? 2, 44, and 45. It's going to kind of give you an idea of how it went. Okay, so they literally, if they didn't have the cash, they'd sell something so they could take care of a brother or sister. It was just absolutely wonderful. Now, I want to kind of talk for a couple of minutes here about some misunderstanding of this passage that I think we need to kind of blow the lid off a little bit. Uh, Some have used this passage of Scripture to make the assumption, and I think it's a false assumption, that Christians should not own anything, that we all ought to be equal in an economic sense. And I don't think you can press into Scripture that particular teaching. Now, that comes from other, other uh, philosophies and, and, um, and other uh, systems. But I don't think you can press that in here. I don't think um, uh, it presumes that, a procedure of, that the procedure of the first century church is the same as the New Testament command. And I don't think you can press that in here. 
Second uh, kind of mistake here is that there are some of those, some who contend that the practice, this practice in this passage is not applicable to the church today where governments are supposed to take care of these kind of things. Okay, now, so you see kind of an equal and opposite mistake here. Okay, the truth is, and you and I know it, if the government would let the church take care of some of these things, we wouldn't need as much governmental intervention. But, but this is not necessarily saying that here. We can't press that into the scripture. Third, uh, the procedure we see here, um, we've got to understand, is not a mandatory precedent. There's nobody being, there's nobody, and it's kind of going to factor in when we get to chapter 5. There's no mandatory precedent here, but an example of what believers can do to help fellow Christians who are in need. Okay, there's no command um, other than, certainly, uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus saying, love one another. And, that, and here it's being lived out in really, really amazingly practical uh, ways. So what I would submit to you is that these passages are, not be, are, are being written not to defend a culture's economic system, but to demonstrate our need to take care of one another, to be generous. Okay. Now, we could press all kinds of things in here, and I think we would do damage, do violence to the Scripture. So let's make sure we kind of deal only with what's there rather than some of our own presuppositions. And I'll have to deal with that, especially as we get to, to uh, into chapter 5 in a minute. Now, it's clear to me, uh, by looking at some of these passages, that the early church adjusted its methods as it grew. Okay? For instance, the passage that was just read from Acts 2 was uh, people would, would um, either take money they had or they would sell some item or some piece of property and they would lay it at the disciples' feet. That was one method. That was kind of a different method. Uh, as we've read, read a minute ago in Acts 2, verse 44 and 45, it literally was, if you had a need, I gave directly to you. Uh, Rhonda's folks at one time were, because of all of her mother's problems, were kind of uninsurable. This was before uh, they were eligible for Medicare, and they entered into a, um, a situation where literally they kind of lived this. It was very interesting. It was a Christian organization where literally, if you, you would get a newsletter, and instead of paying, let's say, five hundred dollars a month for for a health insurance policy, they would tell you you need to send hundred dollars to Julie and hundred dollars to Eileen and hundred dollars to Skip, and and and, and they they'd literally write a. a, a Concern card, an encouragement card, put a hundred bucks in it, written to those people, and it was just kind of all. It was a thing that happened all over the country. It was it was very unique, and kind of wonderful, and you could argue it was kind of biblical. But so the idea here was in the early church is if Darla had a problem and Darla said, "Man, I don't know where I'm going to get fifty bucks to pay the rent," it, uh, Larry might say, "Well, let me write that check." By the way, don't count on that, Darla. You and I know him really well. Okay, don't count on it. Okay. But I know that you guys are in the same office, but don't count it. Okay. Uh, okay. It, that was one method. Another method we're going to encounter in chapter 6 when they begin to really organize to take care of the needs of the whole church. And they established in chapter 6 um, what you and I might call, uh, depending on the, the uh, discipline you grew up in or, or kind of the, the denominational system you grew up in, you might call it deacons. They're kind of first talked about here in chapter 6. And it got really organized. Let's make sure these are being taken care of as well as these over here. And they began to organize that. 
So there are several means being used uh, here um, and, and that the church is using. Um, here in chapter 4, we're talking about a, the first example, at least, where a name is mentioned, where a what you might call a major gift it, to the apostles is given. And literally, this major gift, I think it's very interesting. you got to see this in your mind. We'll talk about this a little bit in, in a little bit. Uh, when Barnabas gives, when Joseph, uh, the Levite, gives, you know, um, someone just before him may have put five bucks at their feet and he lays down 50,000 bucks at their feet and doesn't think anything about it. Everybody's given. Okay? Now, so it's just interesting here how these methods change. Now, what I want to say here, and I don't think I'm taking a stretch here at all, although this was a special gift in terms of size and even the means by which it was given. The giver didn't expect special treatment. He just figured, I'm putting in my check, just like you put in your check. Okay? It really was very clear here. Now, I, I think there's a couple of odd things about our friend Joseph, who later, uh, for the rest of the Bible, we're going to know him as Barnabas, which, by the way, was not his name. It was a nickname. His name was Joseph the Levite. And the rest of his life, after this and beyond, he's going to be called what? Butch. No, not Butch. But that would have been nice. Butch. Yeah, Butch isn't ever on anybody's birth certificate, is it? Yeah. No, no, it wasn't Butch. My dad's name was Buzz, but that wasn't on his birth certificate either. Joseph, the Levite, was on his birth certificate. But what did everybody call him? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We'll read later on where we owe the ministry of Paul kind of to the generosity and encouragement of Barnabas, Joseph the Levite. Now, a couple of things I think are odd about that. So that's kind of interesting. His name was kind of different. He really didn't go by his name in the rest of the Bible. Um, He's a Levite, and this is something I just caught this week. Joseph is a Levite. What do we know about Levites? Priest. Sorry, what? Priest. They're priests. Part of the Levitical families were, um, uh, by the way, let me see if I say this right. All priests were Levites, but all Levites were not priests, okay? That was the, of the tribe of Levi. That's what Moses and Aaron were from. Um, one of the, Levi was one of the 12 sons of, um, of um, Jacob, who was very good, by the way, at making jeans. Um, no. Um, put that work in there a little bit. Okay? Levi. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector, his name his, on his birth certificate was actually what? Levi. Okay? Now, Joseph was a Levite. That probably means, at least in Old Testament terms, that they wouldn't own property. Now, I find that kind of interesting. In the Old Testament, if you're a Levite, you didn't own property. If you can read about the whole division of the land, they had cities, but they didn't have land. They weren't part of the distribution of the land of Israel. They didn't get it. And, and literally, how would you love to be this way? Uh, the Bible says, God will be your portion. 
Oh, gee, thanks. Yeah, but that's the deal. Now, remember, I lived in Kentucky for a long time where they wanted to keep pastors poor and humble. You know, so, so I get that, all right? But here was a minister who was doing this kind of outstanding gift. I find that really odd. Now, um, uh, the Levites would, in the, in the Old Testament, would receive offerings, literally. They were paid out of the offerings that came to the temple, etc. And then they would... Um, then they would pay a tithe on what they were given. I find that kind of an incredible, wonderful process. But recognize here that if Joseph was a Levite, his system was a little different. Now, he was also, it's another thing that's kind of odd about Joseph is where he was from. Where was he from? Was he from um, Judah? Was he from uh, Naphtali? Was he from Dan? Was he from Beersheba? Where was he from? Cyprus. I find that intriguing. Don't know I quite understand that, but Cyprus was not Israel. It was an island out there somewhere, right? Now, one of the things I got to think about, and I don't, know, I don't want to comment further on that because I don't really fully understand how he became a Levite from Cyprus. I don't really get that other than he was from the tribe of Levi, maybe in the, in the dispersion, maybe mom and dad had to move out there, okay? But if I understand it, if he inherited property, it was probably Cyprian property. How much trouble did Joseph have to go to to give this gift? 250 miles one way at a time when that took a while. If it is, like I presume, he went to lots of trouble to go sell this property and come back. And what he did was, you got to catch this, he just laid the money at the disciples' feet. And as my dad would say, walked off whistling. No big deal, but it was a big deal. He didn't expect it to become a big deal. How would you like your act of kindness to end up in the Bible? Do you think that he thought for a moment? He was, on, he was not on anybody's radar. Do you think for a moment he thought, if I give this, it's going to end up in the paper, much less the Bible. That's not what motivated him. That's the big deal here. He just gave it and thought, man, I really hope they can use it. Let's turn the page to chapter 5. Okay, It was talked about. It became a bit of a buzz. So much so that it got, this gift got on the radar of a couple who wanted to kind of emulate the gift in some way. So let's, let's read about what they did. Um, somebody, if you would... Um, let's go to like verse 5, verse 1 through 5. Somebody read that in chapter 5.
glad that didn't happen these days. You know, can you imagine how that would tear a service up? Uh, it'd be a lot of funerals, yeah. Okay, John, can I prevail you to, on you to do something since, since you're, you're predisposed to do this kind of thing? Run back to Joshua 7 and read the first verse here in just a minute. Now, what I want us to deal with, okay, is what exactly happened and what was the nature of things that were happening. Um, uh, it's interesting that Ananias and Sapphira, okay, um, really followed a similar gift process. Did you catch this? Okay. They sold property, right? They decided to make a gift, and when they decided so, they came and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was really similar to what happened to our friend Joseph the Levitic Cypriot. Now, boy, that, that's a handful of words, right? Okay. Joseph the Levitical Cypriot, okay? Or the Cypriatical Levite, whatever. But, okay, so they're... Um, uh, they're doing a similar thing with one incredible difference. What's the difference? Joseph gave it all, and they decided to only give part. Now, I want us to be really careful here at how, how we judge uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? It's not about, I want, to catch, I want you to catch this, it's not about the size of the gift. Okay? It's not about that at all. It's really not. There's something else at work here. John, read Joshua 7.1, tells us about a story of a guy named Achan back right when Israel was coming into the promised land. Okay, now, I find this really intriguing. Didn't know this until I was studying this stuff this week. Achan's sin was that there was, they um, kind of wiped out a town and they were supposed to dedicate all that to God. It was, nobody was supposed to take any booty. Kind of got, got that. Achan decided he'd take a little bit and hide it. And it got the whole, the whole nation in trouble. I find it really interesting that there is, in the Hebrew language, in the verse that John read, John, I think it was read, kept back. Mm -hmm. Okay? That expression, kept back, is one Hebrew word, and I can't pronounce it. But it is what is known in biblical kind of interpretation as a hypox. It only happens one time in all the Old Testament, and it's translated, he kept back some for himself. What I find intriguing is in the, and that's in the, in the Septuagint Greek Bible, it's the same word, okay, the Greek Old Testament, the same word used as kept back is used here in Acts 5 when it says they kept or they took. It's really literally the word, the word, the expression is they took some. The expression for Achan was he took some for himself. Um, uh, it's, I think it's interesting that Luke, the author of Acts, apparently wants the reader who would, who would be reading uh, in, in, in both of these Greek Bibles, wants them to make that connection. Uh, both the older passage and the newer one teach us sobering lessons here about deceit. So, Peter's reaction is one of how he's going to need to deal with and how the church is going to need to deal with an internal threat. 
Now, let me give you a, a couple of facts here. Number one, um, Ananias and Sapphira are pretenders. You could argue they're deceivers. Secondly, they're in collusion. Now, I find those two things combined really interesting. What do I mean by they're in collusion? That doesn't mean you ran into somebody in the parking lot in your car. That's a collision. That's a different thing. They, this was pre, so. Here's a third word. This was premeditated. They got together and said, "Okay, we're gonna sell this, and we're gonna tell them we're giving it all, but we're not gonna give it all." Okay, everybody good with that? Okay, okay. What's your story gonna be if they ask you? What's my story gonna be? It's collusion. Okay, premeditated. All right. So um, and fourth. It seems like it's motivated. The only conclusion we can be left to reach is that it was all motivated by a desire for recognition. Probably the same kind of recognition that Joseph, the Levitic Cypriot, didn't care all that much about. You remember? He laid his money at the apostles' feet and walked off whistling. Okay, now... So Peter's reaction is, shows us what had to happen to an internal threat. They've already reacted last week and in the last couple of weeks to an external threat. Now we've got to see how they're reacting to an internal threat. Now the question here is, is the problem that they withheld some of the proceeds of the sale? I don't think so. Um, somebody go to Psalm 51.4. I want us to read that in just a moment. Psalm 51 verse 4. Who's got it? Thank you. Would you hang on to that, Mrs. Stella, for just a minute? Um, uh, twice in two verses, the problem is stated. In verse 4 and verse 5, what does it say the problem is? It says it twice. They lied, they lied to whom? To God. They don't think they lied to God, but they lied to God. Now, I find that really intriguing. Okay, Estella, are you in Psalm 51? Who was David's great sin against? Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, right? But it's interesting what David thinks. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. You catch what David's saying? No, I'm saying, wait a minute, David. You had a man killed and you had an affair with his wife. Those are the offended parties, right? Not according to David's confession prayer. Lord, against you only have I sinned, he says. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if, if we could interview, and by the way, Peter asks a couple questions here that nobody answers. They're carrying corpses out too much, you know. Why did you do this? We never get that answer. But it, could it be that they thought, we can lie to Peter and not realize that they were also lying to God in the process? I find this really, really intriguing. Two times they lied to God, meanwhile thinking they're only lying to a man or to men. So, in verse 5, what happens to our friend Ananias? He drops dead. What's the response in the church? Great fear. 
Uh, I think so, you know. Now, I, I wrote the question twice in here. Who killed Ananias and who killed it? Sapphira. Did Peter kill Ananias? No. Peter just told him the truth. Did God kill Ananias? That's another question, but I don't think so. Here's the deal. And I think we've kind of got to deal with this in this issue of great fear. Uh, in verse 6, by the way, if you want to go ahead and fill the blank in, there's no record of a funeral. They just went out and buried him. I find that really intriguing too. You know, he dies, they, guys, guard him out and bury him. They did, all right? But I find it really, really intriguing here. The motivation for all this, and my, my, um, uh, the reason for this kind of lying to God to be dealt with so severely and so swiftly and my only conclusion that I can reach is this. I was with a young daddy earlier this week. His, his child was less than a month old. And his great fear right now, in fact, while he was with me, he took a phone call. And, uh, and there was just a little bit of a, there was a feeding issue. And, it, and they're kind of worried about that, not taking in enough calories. I remember when Rhonda worked in neonatal intensive care, I remember the, the great fear that you guys worked on is that they would not take in enough calories to... Uh, to literally counterbalance the calories they expended trying to eat. Because the, the issue was with my friend Marcus and with those mothers and dads that you were dealing with back in the day is that their lives are all wrapped around the baby. The baby has got to survive. Can I tell you, Acts 5 is about the baby has got to survive. In order for the baby to survive, the baby church, it's got to stay pure. Lying to God doesn't fit that. All right, let's move on just a little bit. Somebody read 6 down through 10. Ananias dies. For three hours, they're trying to reach Sapphira on her cell phone. <laughs> but her cell phone operates like everyone else but me in my family. That you get to deal with this? Everybody in my family has dial-out only phones. Have you, do you have that going on? And they never answer it, but they can always get me. I will walk out of a meeting with my boss, with the president of our institution, I will walk out. If Rhonda's on the phone, it's like, excuse me just a minute. What do you need? Uh, would you get some bread on the way? You know, because I'm, but it doesn't, that's not a two-way street, right? So they've been trying to call Ananias, they've been trying to call Sapphira for three hours. She's not answering her cell phone. It's on vibrate and it's stuck in her purse. I've heard that one before too, okay? So what happens... What does she know when she arrives? 
where she thinks her husband is in church. Uh, th thank you. Thank you. It is a little dangerous these days with her sitting there. Uh, what does Sapphira know when she walks in? She doesn't know that Ananias is dead. She doesn't know that he's kind of been caught in this deception. What, the only thing I can think of that she knows is the, the lie that they determined they would both tell. Which I find intriguing. Peter's smooth. Uh, how much did you sell that property for? How much was that again? She says the same thing that her husband had said. And the most important thing she doesn't know, yeah. And so, so, verse eight, I just wrote this statement because it was in, in going through my mind. God seems to be as much interested as the, in the attitude of the giver as he is in the gift itself. And what we've got to understand here, it's not about the amount. It's never about the amount. It's about what's going on in my heart. It's about the motive. So I ask the question here, who killed Sapphira? Peter says it's because she tried to test God. Jesus, in Matthew 4, when he's being uh, tempted by the devil in the wilderness, quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16 and says, don't put the Lord your God to a test. You're going to fail that one every time. Okay? She's trying to test God. And so, here again, the conspiracy here again is to test God. And I'll always fail that kind of test. I find it Peter's final expression here in verse 10 intriguing. And I, I just want to turn this as positively as I can here. And then I want to apply, uh, I'm going to give you three or four little applications before we leave. You know what I, th I think is, is implied in, in Peter's statement? Did Sapphira have to lie? Even though her husband even had? No. No. She didn't. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that, that Peter almost indicates here uh, a truth from way back over in, uh, again, Psalm 51. God will always accept those with a contrite heart, with those with a repentant heart, those that are sorry for their sin. He'll always accept that. But it's kind of too late for that now. So, put the word sincere in the last blank and let's talk just for a minute. It is sincere generosity that glorifies God alone. I have to be really careful about that, that I want glory for me instead of glory for Him, and that's part of what's being dealt with here. I'm inspired by those who give, and even those who, are, who have given large amounts. I, I get a lump in my throat when I think of people who have given so that I could go to school, or people who have given so we could have this church, in, in, sometimes in large amounts. But that's really not the issue here. What I really believe I've kind of discovered as I've dealt with this this week is what God really values. And here's what I believe God really values. Okay, there are three or four things. I believe God values. You hear a lot about the word integrity. I'm going to talk about the word integration. Okay, all right. They come from the same root word. It's the opposite of a word that you and I used to hear in, uh, in sci-fi movies a lot. The word disintegrate. Okay, this is the word of it comes apart. Okay, they point a ray gun at something in an old sci-fi movie and it disintegrates, it comes apart, right? 
What I want to be sure is that I am not disintegrated. I want to be sure that I'm living an integrated life. What that means is that my inside matches my outside. I kind of want to be sure of that about me. And this is convicting to me. I want to be sure that my inside, what I think and what I do, are connected. I want to be sure, here's another way to say it. I want to be sure that my talk matches my walk. I want to be sure that I practice what I preach. I want to be sure that what I believe informs the way I live. Otherwise, I'm living a disintegrated life. And what I desire is to live an integrated life. Can I issue a challenge? Will you go with me in this? Would you just go with me in this? Would you commit yourself to being a Joseph the Cyprian Levi? Would you commit yourself with me to doing everything we can to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice moment by moment by moment, hour by hour, and saying, Lord, I want what's inside of me to match what's on the outside, what other people see. There's so much of me that you can't see that I want to be sure that what I'm saying is, is consistent with what I am, who I am on the inside. Would you go with me in that? You pray for me that what I say here on Sunday morning isn't just hypothesis to me. Would you pray with me about that? That what we talk about here on Sunday morning isn't just theory to me. I want what's on the inside to show through on the way I live on the outside. Here's my question one more time. Will you go with me? Will you go with me? Because you know what? Those that did in that day literally turned their world upside down. We'll finish chapter 5 next week. Thank you.